Right. Uh, okay. Hold on a sec. Open that up. Uh, I'm going to play this. And then I'm going to try and be really clever and duck the audio and then fade it back up because I have a new toy. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Welcome to the Essential Apple Podcast, a show where we cover the last 7 to 10 days in the world of Apple news, reviews, rumours, roundup, gossip, tech, and, well, basically, anything else that catches our eye. This is the Essential Apple Podcast. And guess what? There's actually been some Apple stuff this week. And so for the third time, I'm going to try and crack this intro. This week, Apple released the iMac Pro, purchased Shazam. Yes, got it. Updated Final Cut Pro, Logic Pro and Motion. Patreon reversed course and apologised to its users. Disney bought most of Rupert Murdoch's empire and the FFC voted to remove net neutrality rules within the US. And if that's not enough to get you ready for the week before Christmas, we're joined by David Nanian of Shirt Pocket Software, makers of the excellent Super Duper, which is one of those backup things that, as you all know, listeners, I love to use. On a daily basis, um, almost. David, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, you, you no, you, you can tell you've not been on this show before. That's, that's never a question you ask me because oh. it's just a cacophony of disasters. Well, but I've been listening to the intro a few times, so I think. I have an idea <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it it doesn't get any better. That was it. <laughs> that this is the pinnacle. Uh, where are you joining us from in this the here world of ours? I am twelve miles outside of Boston, Massachusetts, in the U.S. So uh, it's uh, it's it's here where we where we park our cars and stuff. Oh, and uh, is that Jersey Shore? Are you responsible for that? I am not responsible for the shore. No, no, we're we're inland. Ah, uh, right. oh, mob, mob, mob. Oh, blimey, what is going on with me today? Coffee. Oh, uh, no, I know what it is. I'm sobering up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's where it's all going. On. And you're the maker of the rather excellent shirt pocket. Uh, sorry, the super duper clone uh, thingy that I need to be using. Also joining us this week is Simon, our regular beta tester, and somehow his machines, even though they get loads of beaters slammed onto them, are working better than mine, which is why we're running late. How are you doing today, Simon? I'm fine, mate. I'm fine. And uh, talking of betas, I just installed a new beta on my phone, uh, 11.2. something beta 5. Uh, <laughs> but uh, We're um, really inspiring I, our I guests know. this week, aren't we? I mean, normally, I could, get, I could get the intro right and done about two takes, but this time it's, oh. If you've, <laughs> if you've got a drink, David, now is the time to start taking it. Oh, I, I, I just stiffened it up a bit, so I think we're good. There was a joke there to be made, but I didn't make it. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, so what we like to do, David, when we have a guest on the show such as yourself, I always like to throw a little bit... My favourite question is, in all of your Apple gear, what is your oldest bit of Apple tech that you still use on a regular basis? Yeah, I was warned about this, and I, I'm looking around the office, and I don't know. I mean, the oldest bit that I still occasionally use isn't Apple. It's Next, 
and I have a next cube that still oh, works. I'm jealous. I'm yeah. jealous. Oh, nice. It's a next cube with a mono display that still works. Um, with a gigantic 600 megabyte drive. Ooh. So, um, yeah, that 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 takes a little while to spin up, but it does still spin. But that's a and, lovely and noise, then, though, isn't it? That sort oh, of thing. It, it, yeah, that the whole. Well, and you know when the whole cube shakes that the head is moving around and things, it's pretty great, yeah. Yeah, there is no um, dispute. It's like, oh, put your, you know, like with your laptops, you put your ear to the, like, the, the keyboard to hear if it's spinning around. You never uh, have that problem with these there old is, hard drives. There is no question. Plus, I mean, it kicks a lot of heat, so the whole magnesium cube gets quite warm as well. <laughs> Heats your room as well. There you go. Yeah. Free, free bonus. And uh, I'm going to ask you here dave did do you remember how much you paid for such an item i remember that the hard drive alone was thousands of dollars because that was an upgrade from the optical drive only to the optical drive plus a drive and i bought that i i think that cost probably three or four thousand dollars for the drive yeah 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 that definitely hurt but that Back in the days of Usenet, uh, that machine was my old company's mail endpoint for UUCP. So that was uh, my old company was called Underwear, and we had UW as our as our uh, host name. And so that was the UW site, and all the mail would come into that. I've never actually used the Next machine. I've seen one in the National Computer Museum. Uh, I always uh, I always lusted after one. Uh, I've been a Mac user since the days of System Six, mm-hmm. so I remember the I remember the adverts for the next cube, which tended to be a black cube on a desk with a vase with a red tulip in, <laughs> um, and not much more. But technically, I understand they're fabulous. I've I've watched things about the the next step operating system, and of course, if you watch those, if you dig them up on YouTube, there is one with uh, Steve, I think. Uh, demonstrating all the things that the next step operating system can do and you can see that at the time it was streets ahead it's it was and you can see how os 10 is basically built on on the next it's very very much next step um i mean there's obviously a bunch of little differences but in general terms uh next subsumed mac os most definitely i mean you can see things there the tool shelf and the dock and the, the whole Hey, the Unix underpinning itself. I mean, Next yeah. Step was built on the same exact kernel and everything else that all this other stuff is. So, and the operating system and the programming languages, Coco, comes straight out of the Next. So it's um, it's very very similar, and it, it it's amazing how forward looking the Cube was at the time, and how forward looking Next Step itself was, even though it oh, wasn't terribly successful. No, it it wasn't massively successful in many ways. I think it was ahead of its time. Next Step. I think that one of its biggest problems, well, apart from the fact that it was a shockingly expensive system to buy into. Absolutely, yeah. Um, was was that I think a lot of people were, you know, I don't understand what all this is about. I don't understand why we would need all these features. But, yeah, it was forward-looking. I think Apple and, and Next were looking, as they like to say, where the puck was going to be. And uh, they definitely did that. Although the puck that they thought that they were going to have was uh, 
if you were, well, you may not remember the initial pitch, but it was that universities were going to buy these and each student would walk around with their own uh, world on an optical disc, which you would then stick into any of the next systems that were scattered about campus. And all of a sudden it would boot up everything that you had. So you didn't have a laptop. You just had this little disc that you would carry around. And um, that was not a vision that we were skating towards. <laughs> <laughs> no, perhaps not. Although, of course, now in some ways we are because everybody's talking about how your phone is the hub of your digital life. And, you know, that's why there are these people experimenting with these things where you drop your phone into a system and expand it into a full-blown computer. Oh, you're on the Microsoft Continuum train there, aren't you, where you can uh, literally just drop it into a dock. But that's been around for ages, though, that sort of um, device where you can drop it in. It's not a new idea. These people have tried it many times. I think um, the the thing is that now we are perhaps reaching the point with where computing is becoming almost ubiquitous enough and the power that's available in a smartphone is actually, you know, more than adequate for a large percentage of the population. And that's why you, uh, Mark and I, are all sitting straight in front of our phones and not using computers at all right now. Well, the thing is, I would actually do the podcast on the phone. It's just lacking the ability to be able to record. I haven't worked out. I know some people have got some really complex mixer setups, but I really haven't had the time to sort of look into it. Because looking at the iPad Air 1, which is what my, uh, is that my oldest bit of kit? No, I have an original iPod with the clicky wheel. Oh, I have that in the basement as well. Yeah. Back is still shiny even. Oh, you can tell it's never been used. Uh, well, that's what I've also got, I think I've actually got the one of the first touchscreen iPods as well, if mm-hmm. I go and have a look hard enough. But now I've completely lost the point of what I was driving to. Recording on a phone. Yes, there we are. See, so <laughs> welcome to the, oh, hang on, Super Duper podcast. <laughs> we should just give you the show notes to let you run with it because you couldn't have done any worse than us. No, no offense. So, you know what I mean? Um... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, even like, what one of my stories I like to tell is when I had a, an iPhone 6, a 6S and a 7, all in one go, and I just did the, uh, I took a bit of video and I just whacked it into iMovie, iMovie and exported it, and it's a generational gap of a magnitude where it exports it from like a minute to 45 seconds, then down to 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. So you're right, the the device we have in our hand is there. It's just, it doesn't quite do what I want it to do. But then again, that's the whole point of a generic device. It never is going to. I do remember, however, working many, many years ago in a shop called Dixon's, which is one of those horrible high street retailers that whenever you buy... I've been to a Dixon's, yeah. Oh, blimey. Sorry to hear that. Did they no, try... Sorry. Did they try and stuff you on the insurance, which is their whole <laughs> business model? They always do. <laughs> Uh, and I'll never forget a guy paid three hundred and twenty-five pounds for four meg of RAM. Wow. Yeah. Well, no, I remember that sort. I remember back in the day where that was you would expect to pay sixty-seven pound a meg at least, maybe a hundred. RAM yeah. is one of those things that's just gone as it's. It's like a commodity now, isn't it? Like well, a yeah, trading commodity. commodity. But that's because as as computers have gone from being something fairly exotic to something that's in everything from your toaster to your microwave 
you know, RAM manufacturers are just churning it out by the bucket full, and it's just the economies of scale. Well, we we have such a such a hunger for RAM at this point too. I was thinking of the first uh, computer that that I bought as in my first company was the original IBM PC, believe it or not, and um, that with the 64K of RAM and a monochrome display, and I don't remember how big the hard drive was. I think it was a 10 megabyte hard drive was almost $12,000, and that had less storage in total than any like an a Raspberry Pi that you can buy for four ninety nine, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and less computing power as well. Oh yeah, definitely. Those those definitely. Raspberry Pis are a nice bit of kit. I just wish I had the uh, the wherewithal to actually sit down and want to use them. Well, I suppose really, as we've got a guest on the show, we should actually talk about who you are and what you do. Uh, so now. You've never listened to the show. Quite frankly, I don't blame you because I, even at least I sometimes go, oh, Jesus, this this was a bad one. But for those regular listeners out there, they know that I am fastidious with my backup. So really, I don't need to know anything about this. But for those people not like me who, you know, who have a regular backup and uh, inscrutable in their backup processes, tell us a little bit about Super Duper. Sure. So, um, so SuperDuper is a backup program that we wrote and came out with originally in 2004. And the general idea for it was to make the process of backing up as comprehensible as possible to most users and as simple as possible for most users. So what I did is when I designed it, I tried to make it so that it would explain in English everything that was going to happen to you when you press the copy button and that the interface was as minimal as possible, even though the power of the program was pretty extensive. So um, it's actually just got about six buttons on the entire UI apart from some of the options. And uh, you just have to click a couple of buttons and it will make a full backup. And what's cool about this style of backup at least is that you can start up from it. So if you're, internal drive on your computer doesn't work uh, or your entire computer lets all the magic smoke out the ports, which is bad. Uh, You can take your backup to a different Mac or buy a new Mac and plug it in and you're up and running extremely fast. So that was the general idea is rather than back in the, in those days, people were using uh, retrospect a lot and they might use retrospect to take drives and things and recovering uh, from a retrospect backup could take days just because you have to pull out all the tapes or all the floppies or whatever you had and shove them into drives and hope the catalog didn't get corrupted. And with this, you just sort of boot right up and uh, and up you come. So that was the general focus of the product. Yeah, I, I, I remember very much um, because uh, Dave's selling himself slightly short here. I, I can't recall if, if um, Super Duper was the first OS ten cloning solution or not but if it wasn't the first it was very very close and uh it made creating a bootable backup really easy and uh you know it was just fabulous because you're right uh, the other technologies available that most people would have been using at the time were things like retrospect and a, a couple of others but really, those make archives, don't they? Rather than 
they don't make bootable backups. You, no, no, if they your make machine a, a proprietary, a proprietary yeah. style of backup, yeah. No, if your machine dies with something like Retrospect or, or one of the others, you have to get a new machine, install the software, set up your user account, and then, you know, effectively pull all this stuff out of an archive. So don't get me wrong, Retrospect is a brilliant product for, it is for, sure. for making um, archives. Uh, I believe we use it at work to make backups of our our work. So um, all, all of our work is kept on the server, the actual files, you know, the actual PDFs and InDesign documents and so on. And that uh, that server is then cloned to another identical server. And then once a week, the backup server is retrospected to um, an archive. So because we believe in the, and because I've hammered it into my, uh, you know, my management team above me, uh, if it's not backed up three times, it's not properly backed up because, uh, you know, you can always get a perfect storm. So, you know, we have to have, we have the, we have the server. We have a time machine of the server. We have a clone of the server, and then we have a retrospect archive, in kept off site. You know, in case the whole building burnt to the ground, we could yep. uh, we could recover our work because, in the end, you know, the hardware is replaceable. The um, operating systems are replaceable. The applications are replaceable the one thing that you hold that is not replaceable and would bring your business probably to bankruptcy if you lose it is your data in fact the, the comprehensive backup strategy i think is worthwhile not just for businesses but for individuals oh, for everybody. oh i, I couldn't agree with you more i i yeah. really could not agree with you more yeah, Pete, you don't take your own advice then, Mark. I'm, I, I'm looking at Super Duper. That's got to be a step in the right direction. <laughs> I've heard of Super Duper. I keep thinking, oh, you know what? I must go and give Super Duper a try. It's just, yeah. Well, what, well, what, what more can one man do? You should do because Because if you download Super Duper, even if you never pay for it, uh, Dave has set it so that even if you have the free unlicensed version, you can make a clone of your hard drive. And in fact, it, it never expires. So you nope. can continue to make clones forever. And uh, it comes it, with support because I'm a masochist. So, yep. <laughs> and and I, the only real restriction on that is if it's unlicensed, you cannot use the uh, much faster I don't know what you'd call it, differential clone or whatever. Well, it's, it's where... called, we call it smart update. And yeah, smart, smart update, update. Is, yeah, it doesn't erase the drive first. It only copies the changes. Yeah, if you have the unlicensed version, you have to do a complete new clone every time, which obviously is. Yeah, so it's not slower. an incremental job. No. So, 
so just having a look through it now, um, and again, I know this sounds like really unprofessional. I haven't looked at it now, but I always think yeah, it's always a good experiment to get someone on uh, who's actually done the software and can guide me through. So, yeah. for example, my let me give you a scenario here. Yeah, my 2015 uh, Mac server is slow as a dog. Now, mm-hmm. I want to back it up, but I don't want to back up everything. Sure. So what would be, if it's sort of like for me, I know that I've got a load of downloads, a load of craft, basically it's just a few areas I want to exclude. What would be the best way to do that? Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, why do you have them if you want to exclude them? Because uh, if you're not backing it up, you're you're willing to lose it, craft or not. So since disk space is cheap, you should be backing the entire thing up. If you don't want to back it up, then just delete it. It's not that you can't exclude it, but I really discourage people from excluding things for that simple reason. It's like if you didn't want that data, you should delete it. If you want it, then you should back it up. And that sort of brings me right. And basically, it's a load of downloads of, should we say, uh, TV shows that I've legally watched, should we say. I totally understand. And you should still back it up because do you want to have to download all of those legally watched TV shows again? Uh, it's the fact that I'm very tight and haven't got any spare hard drives, if I'm honest with you. That's why. That's what the plan was, was like, right, have I got any hard drive space? Uh, well, no. We we do have I, – I, I do encourage you to spend the, uh, the the $50 or whatever that translates to in pounds these days to yeah, get a hard drive. Pounds, yeah, pay. yeah. But, um, but yeah, you, so you can do this. It's uh, We do have something called copy scripts, and scripting is sort of a overly freighted term. It's really just a matter of adding a couple of folders into a list and then using that and telling it you want to exclude. So it's it's quite easy to do. And in fact, I step you right through it in the uh, in the comprehensive user's guide, which is yeah, sixty uh, I mean, pages long and mostly pictures. And when I when I've used SuperDuper, I mean it does have a full, although on the surface, like all good software. You know, if you're a beginner, you've got a few buttons and it's like, I want to copy this and I want to put it there and I want it to be bootable and, you know, I don't need to exclude anything. And that's that's the surface. But below that, should you want to do, you know, uh, right, I don't want to back this up because it's junk and I don't. That, all that power is there as yeah. long. And of course, I, I should mention, of course, that one of the most important things that all good backup software does is it's uh, uh what's the word it, it's oh blimey gonna have to cut that bit it's <laughs> you, you can timetable it can't you what's schedule. the word for that schedule schedule That's, yes i've gone yeah. i went completely blank. yes of course because you can schedule it and all good backup software should allow you to schedule because then it's fire and forget and it, it will either prompt you or automatically do that backup for you without any user intervention and yeah we have two different types of scheduling too we have both a time-based scheduling and we have another uh schedule where you can back up when you connect a drive so if you just plug in your backup drive you can have it pop up it'll do the full backup and it'll even eject the drive when it's done so you can just plug it in once it's finished you unplug it and you put that on a shelf or in a safe or uh, in a safety deposit box. Yeah, which is, of course, that that, that mode is, is really useful, of course, for laptop users. Yeah, yeah. Because 
you know, with a if you're on a desktop and you you've got a NAS or a hard drive just you know connected for time machine or clones or whatever, which is what I do at work. I have mm-hmm. you know, I have a a hard drive on the back which is partitioned into two halves, and the time machine goes on one partition and the clone goes on the other. But for my laptop, obviously at home, I, it's not permanently connected, so what I do is I plug my I plug my hard drive in and up pops the little thing saying, "Would you like to make do your you know run your clone now?" And it's just yes, please update yeah. my clone, and that's job done. Yeah, it's it's important for people to remember that. I, again, I, I want to emphasize that disk space these days is relatively cheap, and one of the problems that people often have is that they will pile all of their backups onto one drive. So, as you said, you know, you have Time Machine on one partition of a drive and a Bootable Clone on another partition. The problem is that when you lose that drive, so all drives fail, including backup drives, you'll lose both of your backups. So you'll your Time Machine is gone and your regular uh, backup yeah. is gone. So which of course. At work is why we then also, absolutely, you know, it's all, all that stuff's all shoved across to the server as well, yes. and then so, as I say, cloned yet again, and then yep. retrospected. But yes, you're right, and drop but drives are cheap. Yeah, and and there's also services like Backblaze, which are great. So what I always suggest to people is that they use Time Machine, uh, Super Duper, or a similar product, your choice. I really just want people to back things up. If you don't want to use my product, that's fine, but please back up. And then uh, something like Backblaze. So you've got a cloud backup, a local backup that is time-based, so you can get back something that's uh, three weeks old potentially, and then an immediate recovery style of backup like SuperDuper. Although in the newest version of SuperDuper, I don't know if you've seen the 3.1 version. Uh, Yes, I have, yeah. Yeah, we now allow time-based recovery uh, when your backup drive is uh, formatted as APFS, which is pretty cool for those users on High Sierra. Yeah, that's good. What, have there been any challenges of updating to support APFS in the world of backup stuff? <laughs> oh, master of understatement, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, I can't see how a whole new file system could create any challenges at all for backup. <laughs> Yes, in, in fact, planning and and uh, and executing a plan against a new file system is is extremely challenging. Um, the biggest problem that we had wasn't so much supporting the new file system, which we had a general. It it is virtually undocumented, but it's supposed to be semantically equivalent to um, to HFS plus. So you would think that it would be easy. But what we were mostly concerned about was uh, coverage on all of the different types of systems and setups that people may have that interact differently now with the new APFS. So we did something that we basically never do. We did a public beta uh, when 3.0 came out. So when uh, High Sierra was released, we released our first public beta on that day. And then we did about seven additional betas as we pushed it out to many thousands and tens of thousands of people who were all trying this out on their own APFS setups so that we could make sure that we were confident, no matter what our internal testing plans looked like, that we didn't push it to the entire community until those kind people who were willing to run beta software with 
I believe we have one of those on the line now. <laughs> the the obsessive the obsessively beta. Um, so once we had that coverage and we we made sure to handle some of those unusual edge and corner cases, uh, then we released to everybody, and that that's worked out super well. I think the thing with with doing betas is it's addictive. Mm. You it's you know that you're you know you're treading on the bleeding edge, but once you get into it, you just can't. It's like I must have the newest, best stuff. I need to know what's coming. That and sounds if it's... so much like a scene from The Deer Hunter, though, and that went quite poorly. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do, and I guess yes, it is addictive. But I also enjoy it because when you do find something or you've got something to say, you know, you can feel that you're giving something back to to the you know to the designers to the producers you can say look this is i can see why you did this but it's not working for me or you know if i do this then um that happens and uh, of course you need in some respects you do need some wide test beta testing because people you know might be running all sorts of weird and wonderful other products you know the gamut of of applications out there for the Mac is vast. Yes, yes. And, you know you have people who are into music production, or people who are doing video, or people who are doing databases, or people who are doing, uh, you know, mostly online communications. And so you can get a, this is where you get things. You know, we're using Wire. It's not the most well known uh, voice over IP product. So, not that I'm saying it would, but this is where beta testing will bring out. Oh, when I do this, if I've got wire open, and I'm not, you know, this is a purely hypothetical, but, you know, my super duper crashes, these sort of things that you wouldn't come across in internal testing because nobody can have every app in the world and, and try out all the combinations. I, I am pleased to say that I actually have a super duper backup happening right now, and it has not yet crashed. So no, I'm sure it wouldn't, and I'm not. I'm not <laughs> suggesting for one moment what I'm saying is that, that wide beta testing does find those little corners, those dark nooks and crannies, and those strange edge cases where weird things can happen. Um, it, in fact, one of the one of the kind of cool things that we put into super duper many years ago is called sandboxing. And that was focused on the the test community that might want to install a new version of the operating system. But one of the problems, as I'm sure you've noticed, is that as you install new versions of the operating system, sometimes they say, okay, now you just need to go back to the old one and do you want a fresh install? Mm -hmm. And if you've been doing any work, all your data is now in this, in essence, unsupported configuration. So what sandboxes let you do is share both your installed applications and your home folders with a new install of the OS so that if you wanted to roll back the operating system to the previous build, all you have to do is reboot to the original drive, which is pretty cool. Yep. yep. That's a, a very handy. Well, it, you're obviously passionate about the whole backup situation. So what was it that inspired you then to think, ah, oh, you know what I want to do? I want to have the responsibility of helping people back up their software. How did it all come about? Uh, I'm so tempted to just say drink at this point, but I guess that would be the wrong answer. Um, 
you know, it, it, a lot of it had to do with over the many years that I'd, I, I started in this general business in 1983. And I'd been dealing with uh, with people and configurations for a very, very long time. And one of the things that I definitely saw was friends, relatives, acquaintances, people who I was doing business with. Not that they didn't have the best intentions for backing up, but they just didn't seem to be doing it. And part of it was that they just couldn't understand or follow a relatively simple backup regimen because the tools available were either inconvenient or incomprehensible. They would end up in situations where they were having failures and they didn't know it. Um, there were just a, there was a whole pile of issues that seemed like they were relatively easy to solve. And you know, part of that is a uh, is a software solution and having something that's well designed that's relatively easy to use. And part of it has also been a support solution where um, I answer personally every single email that comes in about this. I you know there's not a crack team of of support specialists. It's me spending all day helping people with their data. And at some level, that is also something that I think is important, where you have someone who you know is going to be there to help you out when things go wrong. And the thing about drives and whether they're SSD or spinning drives, uh, it's going to go wrong. It's just that's why we back up. It, it will happen. And if you're not uh, technically savvy enough to be able to recover on your own, it's nice to have someone there who can uh, act as your potentially minor data loss counselor while they get you back going again. So it's in some ways, it's a way of me giving back to uh, a community that has you know, given me a, a, a great career. When Apple came out with their whole iCloud um, backup doodah and all these, the proliferation of online backups, mm-hmm. did, did, did that sort of have an impact on your business at all? Because obviously now it's all in the cloud. Or, or has it sort of been the people that know about backups know about this program and it doesn't overly affect you too much how how has that been that shift been in the last sort of year or two in in fact i would suggest that it things in the cloud don't don't somehow make things easier um in fact i was just dealing with someone a day or two ago where uh he had all of a sudden icloud had deleted all of his contacts on him and they were just gone and he called up apple and apple's like well they're they're not here we don't have them because they're not backing them up. Sure, the data may be in the cloud, but it's also, of course, cached locally. And they had no way of getting it back for him. Uh, but fortunately, he had a super duper backup. And by simply booting to that and then exporting the data from it was his calendar, exporting the data from his calendar and then importing it back in on the other side, he was able to recover. So the cloud, it affords in some ways more opportunity to lose data. And uh, so it's still incredibly important to back that data up. And the other, the other, the other thing I, I think it's important to make clear about having a clone, be it from SuperDuper or Mike Bombich's uh, carbon copy cloner and probably other products, is that the thing with the clone drive is when you plug it in, it's just exactly that, a, a mirror of your hard drive. So you can go into it, and it's, you know, you navigate through it, through the finder, just like any other drive. There's nothing weird or wonderful. It's not like trying to look in, your, you know, if you go into the time machine, what you've got is a load of weirdness, which, you know, unless you understand how that whole hack is put together, 
<laughs> and it is. Even Apple admit because of how they wanted to make Time Machine, it, it's a bit of a dirty hack. Um, and that's part of what APFS is about, of course, which uh, eventually I'm sure they will use that to improve Time Machine. But the, the thing with a clone is it's just another hard drive, isn't it, Dave? That's the You can go in there and navigate through the finder and find the thing that's lost or corrupted or disappeared and just drag it out across the finder. Yeah, that was that was something that we thought was incredibly important is that the storage mechanism is entirely non-proprietary. It is just a drive, or even if you're doing a disk image, the image is a standard Mac OS file format. We write normal data right into that image, and you can recover with super duper, you can recover individual files with Finder. Uh, you can even recover with disk utility itself and restore something using disk utility. So the idea was to try to make it, you're not locked into us in any way. Uh, you can update and restore the backup. So if Shirt Pocket went away tomorrow, which it's not doing, but if it did, uh, all your data is perfectly safe and available as it was before. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, uh, this is the, this is why I I have a thing. I constantly, a bit like you, you know, at the mug, there's me and a couple of other guys, and we like bang on and on and on. You know, do a backup. Go buy a drive. Time machine is great, but go and get cheap drive. Use Super Duper or Carbon Copy Cloner or, uh, you know, one of the others. I, I'm not particularly familiar with any of the others. No, something. Do something. Yeah. Please. No, because yeah, we do. We we still get people come in. You know, I've lost all my pictures. Well, where where were they? They were on this external drive, and what's happened? The external drive is busted. Yeah. You know? yeah. Right. And did you have a backup? No. And of course, photographs. You know, in in the work environment, I was talking about data for home users. Photographs are pretty much. You know, they're the irreplaceable data that you really should back up. Well, and financial records as well. People oh, yeah. often have a lot of financial records on their computers. That that's actually a, a it brings up an interesting point. We get we get questions all the time about how often should people back up, and the period you should back up at is actually really easy to determine. It's the number of days of data you're willing to lose. Yeah. Right. So if you don't mind that a week's worth of data was lost, then you can back up every week and that's fine. If you don't mind that a month's data will be lost, then you can back up every month. But I certainly, and probably you certainly, wouldn't want to lose more than a little while's worth of data. So that's why having multiple strategies works well where you know you want a full backup every day, which is your, your clone style backup. And then you want a time-based backup, perhaps every hour, which is your time machine style backup yeah. and then maybe an instant backup which is what things like backblaze are doing where it's actually trying to back things up as they change so uh multiple multiple strategies none of which will cost you a lot of money uh and they'll save your data which you will be grateful for should the inevitable happen which hopefully well, it won't I, but it know, will. I, i've said it before and i'll say it again and everybody who's worked in computing for more than about six months knows it there are only two types of users, those who've lost data and those who will lose data. Well, I'm both. <laughs> I disagree because I have not 
knocking on lots of wood here. I have uh, I have not ever lost any data, and I've lost drives, but well, not data. Yeah. I guess I guess back back in the day when that was the thing, that was when you know people were really talking about drives. But yeah, yeah, you know, drive drive failures even now still happen. In fact, Mark Mark will know. Um, not long ago, uh, we did a show, and at the end of the show, I said, "It's all right, Mark. I I'll edit it." So I saved the, the file onto the desktop. I went into the kitchen to cook my dinner. I thought I'll come back after I've had my dinner. I'll edit the show. I came back to my sh- came back to my Mac, tapped the space bar, and I got the flashing question mark. Oh. My hard drive had died silently in the time it took me to cook my dinner. It wanted to be fed, and you did not feed it. Feed it, yeah. Well, actually, when it when it went away to be repaired, they told me that the uh, connector cable was fried. And they'd completely burned out. Um, so they put me in a new hard drive and uh, a new cable, obviously, and sent it back to me. And, and it was fine. Of course, I did have a clone backup. I had mm-hmm. my clone backup. Um, but they also sent me back the old drive telling me it was no good. So I thought, well, mm, okay, I'll just check that. So I put it in. Um, I've got a little wallet enclosure that mm-hmm. you, it, you just pop it in um, with a cable. And I plugged it in, and it was fine. Nice. So, <laughs> bonus. It, Free it, drive. I'm, I'm not sure I would trust it 100%, but it's handy for, you know, uh, and yet another backup. But, uh, yeah, but that's it. Drives can just go like that. And I had no problems with my machine. It was working fine, and then it wasn't. It was just dead. And that's also an interesting thing that people will often – think that they should like if a drive becomes unreadable so uh, we've all seen that situation where a a file you can't read it from the drive and people will often think that that file is somehow abstractly corrupted like it has bad data it's formatted wrong or something but that's not at all what's going on there what's going on is that the sectors under the file have failed yeah and the reason that the file can't be read is because the drive is literally failing. So I always encourage people that once their drive starts to fail, you are lucky that you had an indication, an early warning of failure, and you should get that drive replaced right away. Yeah. Because again, it's cheap to replace that drive. And do you really want to wait until you have a catastrophic failure? Yeah. It's just and, bad. Uh, and they do tend to go, yeah, if I ever get one that starts playing up in that sort of way, you know, this file can't be read then it's uh oh yeah that's time to bin that drive without a question yeah that's you know this one needs hitting you know salvage what you can hit it with a hammer and Mm -hmm. send it to the recycle and one final question from someone who obviously does a lot of backups like on a daily basis like yours truly if you've backed up your if you've i'm just in uh super duper here if i've backed up my hard drive to super duper backup i'm going to assume that i can then just open that backup and pull out any files that i want from it just by just by mounting it yep 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 yep. that's exactly the point awesome awesome that's exactly the point and it will be bootable if you want to boot from it plug it in boot with the alt key held down choose that drive and boot from that one which is a handy always an a handy thing to have should you get a problem with your mac and sometimes the only way to you know run drive utility or whatever is to run or boot from a 
from another drive. So yeah, remember that recovery, you know, the new magical recovery partition, that's on that same drive. So mm. if your drive dies, you can't run recovery. You so having a, an external backup program, an external bootable backup lets you actually start up from that backup and then uh, run disk utility to do repairs or whatever. There is no undenying your passion for backups and <laughs> what could have been a very, very dry topic uh, is, is actually been riveting. But that being said, we will come back to Super Duper within the show. We can chill it a little bit more. Uh, should we? Yeah, should we do some news for the world of Apple? Did you want to join us for some Apple news or did you want to actually go and enjoy and do something sociable on the Sunday? I'm more than happy to join you for the news. Excellent. Well, what we'll do then, we're going to take a five-minute break. We'll head over to Nemo's Hardware Store, and then we'll be right back to go through the latest week of we've actually got some Apple news. So we will be right back. We received an extraordinary guitar here at Nemo's Hardware Store. It's called Fusion, F-U-S-I-O-N. The website is FusionGuitars.com, F-U-S-I-O-N-G-U-I-T-A-R-S, FusionGuitars.com. The cost in the U.S. is $1,000 as a $100 special during the holidays, so you can get it for $900. It's a premium guitar for intermediate and advanced guitarists. It's an electric guitar with a solid body. The body is black. The neck is available in a maple, a clear, pale whitish maple, which is the one I received, and also a dark rosewood color. It's a six-string guitar. It has an amplifier and speakers built in, so you do not need to connect it to an external amp to make a sound. It's a medium volume, and I'll demo it before this episode is over. It has a very good action, comes with the strings on it. It includes a beautiful traveling carrying case with a handle as well as straps, for a backpack, includes an extra set of strings, a really nice full quality leather, very sturdy shoulder strap because the guitar is heavy. Electric guitars are heavy and add in the amp and the battery because it is a rechargeable battery and that makes it even better. Very good website. Have a look at it. Just been reviewing it for a couple of days. The final review with pictures and sound samples will be at MyMac.com in a few weeks. If you are a guitarist or know somebody who is, this is an exceptionally nice product. It's a little heavy, so you don't want to wear it for more than about 15, 20 minutes at first until your neck and your shoulders get used to walking around the room while you're standing up. But I can personally recommend this. I'm planning on giving it a very high rating at our MyMac.com website coverage. Fusion Guitar Strong Nemo recommendation, and I hope to stock a lot of these at the hardware store, because while people are picking out their other cables and accessories, you never know when they might just want to walk out with a $1,000 electric guitar that has an amp and speakers built in. At the other end of the price range is an Indiegogo campaign cable. It's called the Charby Sense, C-H-A-R-B-Y. S-E-N-S-E, Charby Sense, world's smartest auto cutoff cable. What that means is it stops charging. It has a sensor in it to know when you're done charging in your car or in your house, wherever you happen to be, in a hotel room, school, work, lab, Starbucks, wherever you happen to be charging it. It's currently in an Indiegogo campaign. The campaign's goal has been exceeded, so this product will exist. You can get the early bird price, $19 each, or two for $38. That's the USA price. Simon and Mark will provide 
UK and international links if they do exist for the Fusion guitar and the Charby cable. The cable I received is wrapped in a very heavy duty fabric wound and there is a really really durable plastic and metal tip both at the lightning end and at the USB end. So have a look at the Charby Sense cable and the Fusion guitar and I'll be back next week with more exciting stuff from Nemo's hardware store. Okay, I'm putting the uh, Fusion guitar case here on the bed. It's a really, really nice case. Unzipping it, taking the guitar out, putting the really sturdy strap around my head, getting that comfortable, turning the power button on on the bottom. It does also work with an amplifier. I tested that, and it works great with my amp. And there's two knobs on the front, one for the volume of the speaker, and the other two work with the two pickups that are here. That's the sound unamplified. Let's turn the volume up here. Okay, that's a quick introduction to the Fusion guitar, and it's got a lot of punch in the sound, and you'll be hearing a lot more about it and from it in the future. Cheers, John, for yet again another fascinating Nemo's hardware store. And, of course, you'll find all of the links over on EssentialApple.com or hopefully in the chapters. If you pick up your device, and depending what app you're using, you should see a little link there with the Amazon logo on it. And if you tap on that link, that will take you through to Amazon, where we get a very, very small amount of commission for whatever you make and for sorry, whatever you buy. And it all goes into the running of this podcast. Right, so we're going to cover some news then, and it's actually been a bit of uh, bit, a bit, bit of a week for news, really. Apple have released yet more updates and betas. Simon, what have we been able to look forward to this week in terms of updates and betas? Uh, well, there were several updates, uh, some security updates. There was a new beta for iOS, as I said. There were betas also, I believe, for Apple TV and the Apple Watch. I don't, I don't dabble with those. Um... And there was, I believe, uh, a new beta. I can't remember what number now. I've lost track. In the middle of the week, there was a new High Sierra beta as well. Um, so basically, there were betas available for everything over the course of the week. Awesome. Um, what about you, David? Are you are you on a beta channel at all? I mean, obviously, you're you're the king of backups. So do you... I, I am on all of the beta channels. Yes. Oh, that that's just masochism in its. It's, in its I, entirety. I did say at the beginning I was a masochist. And no, <laughs> I, I do quite a lot of testing. And it's very important, obviously, for developers to stay on top of whatever's coming out. So I have both uh, machines on the regular main mainline versions. And I also have a number of machines on the betas as well. Cool. I, I don't these days. Uh, it's bad enough just trying to get something to read and write from a disk in a, in my Mac server. So <laughs> I think I might be going, ah, oh, Amazon, can uh, I get a hard drive in time for Christmas? Answer, yes, they can. Uh, yeah, as I was as I was saying to Dave, the thing, the thing with betas is they're kind of addictive. If you get into it, you kind of get hooked on it. Just 
be there, ahead of the curve. Uh, it's yeah, nice you know, also to be able to participate. I mean, it really is um, not just addictive, but you have an opportunity there to sway a product uh, slightly in the direction that may please you more. So that's a nice thing. Yeah, very much so. I well, or just just to feel that you're participating. You know, if you find a bug or a piece of feedback you want to give, you know, you just feel that you're giving something back. I guess. You know, I do. I do enjoy that, even when things go wrong. And uh, of course, with betas, as we were saying, you know, no one can have every app, so there are always nooks and crannies that a, that a beta can expose. Yeah, and as a developer, I can certainly say that I think all of the development community really appreciates people who are willing to take a risk on uh, on running a beta. It helps not just produce a better product, but it helps us do a better job. Awesome. Well, I suppose really we're sort of rattling through these because the machine that has been tested to work at an operating altitude of 30,000 feet has been released because Apple has begun selling the 4,999.27 inch iMac Pro with eight core CPU deliveries arriving in 27th of December. So fair place to Apple. They did their little trick again of saying, yeah, we'll be shipping at the end of the year. Right. At the You'd end. always know that that is the end. <laughs> is, it, is this a machine that interests you at all there, David? Uh, it, it looks like it's a magnificent machine. Um, I don't know whether it, it what it really seems to be targeted at is people who are doing a, a lot of video work uh the amount of data that you can pump through this machine and the amount of uh, uh, uh fast rendering they can do with uh, both good gpus and good cpus is pretty tremendous so it whether they price performance for regular development work versus the regular 5K iMac, which is what I actually do my development on, it's hard to justify for a couple of additional fast seconds of um, of compile time. So probably not, but that doesn't mean I don't think it's a great machine. I think it is. I just think it's for uh, an audience that is not necessarily me. Yeah, I, I think I'd concur with that. I mean, I... As Mark knows, I recently uh, got an upgrade to the 2017 27-inch 5K iMac myself at work. Mm. Mm. Um, And I do, obviously, I do graphic design um, and pre-press work uh, because I work in printers. And that's a fabulous machine. And I looked at this iMac Pro, and it's a beautiful machine, and it's super powerful, and it does all these. But would I be able to justify that sort of money for what I do? No, I, I don't think I would. I don't think it would bring anything more to the table. If you know what I mean, it would be total overkill. And as you say, it's designed for a specific audience who do specific things, whether that's, you know, game development with a lot of 3D rendering, whether it's videos, special effects, that kind, you know, animation. That's the kind of target market very much and other than a few people who are probably flash enough to buy one just to show off uh i i don't you know it's not aimed at the mainstream at all uh, which i think was. is a good thing I, you know having a pro machine that's aimed at something other than the mainstream it should truly be a pro machine and i think unlike the previous mac pro which again was a sort of magnificent piece of engineering that was uh skating to a puck that was not actually headed towards a goal um, this one, I think, is much more in the 
mainstream pro market. The other one was sort of looking at people who needed multiple GPUs that were doing a lot of GPU calculations. And I, I don't think that market ever existed. It was a bet on the future that didn't occur. This one, I think, though, is really going to make a lot of people happy, just not me. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's a lovely machine. I mean, there's some criticism because it's a completely closed system. You've got mm. to decide up front how many cores you want and how much RAM you want, and, and that's it because it's kind of practically welded shut, and that's the end of it, um, and you will run it until it dies. Uh, well, that's been the same with a lot of kit now anyway, hasn't it, for the last few years? It's sort of nothing really new. It's like... you. you... You don't buy a Porsche and you spend a load of money on the car and go, oh, look at that, I can open up the bonnet, but I can't service anything unless you train to. Yeah, oh, well, that is true. I mean, the whole world is going that way very much. Although um, people do tweak out their Porsches in all sorts of ways with aftermarket parts. Um, it's not like the hood is, is welded shut. No, exactly. The the, the I think the, there will be some criticism over that for a a pro market, but then... Apple have said, you know, that the that the new Mac Pro, which you know is going to be modular and expandable, and the whole thing, that's the one that's being aimed at the market for people who really need to be able to swap out parts and stack up twenty seven drives and all sorts of things. I have um, to say, I do miss my old cheese grater Mac Pro. I thought oh, that was yes. a fantastic machine. That was a beautiful, beautiful design. Yeah. Um, people criticised it for being big and uh, hefty, but it was a wonderful machine. When I well, I had a G5 cheese grater originally, mm-hmm. and when you took the side off that and looked inside, it was like this is how a computer should be put together. Because at the time, if you opened a you know your average PC, there would be wires everywhere and inscrutable, ugly boards and all sorts of stuff. And, and not to mention sharp edges and everything else. Oh but, yes, yeah. sharp edges and all sorts. And then you opened this thing, and it was like an operating theatre on the inside, wasn't it? And the drives just plugged in, no wires. You just slid them in. You know, it it was a beautiful, beautiful um, design. I thought it was fabulous. It only um, had one problem, which was that the power supply, if you remember, was on the bottom. And to change the power supply, which would fail, you had to disassemble the entire machine. Yes, that was it. Probably it's it's one failure. And then we uh, later on after the G5, I had a uh, a Mac Pro, um, multi core, uh, the Xeon one, mm-hmm. which of course was basically the same, had the yeah. same chassis and everything. Um, my my only thought, and I've said this on this show before about the iMac Pro, is it reminds me very much of the 2FX in that it's a machine that has been customized, prodded, poked, and made into the most powerful machine they can get, but almost certainly by hot-rodding it in ways which take it away from the main branch of development. And that it will be in itself, it will be an evolutionary dead end. It will be a fabulous machine, but it it won't be. I don't think it's a machine that will like get. Oh, here's the iMac Pro. Will it be refreshed every year? Will it? Will it? Or will it languish like the old iMac Pro? I think it might get a refresh, but 
when it comes to you know iMac Pro V2, that will be a completely different machine. It will have different processors in it, different motherboards. That, yeah, do you get what I mean? Well, I, the the one thing that I would say along those lines is that I don't think that we have reached the platonic ideal of what a um, an iMac necessarily is, and as such, this machine feels like the uh, the the penultimate version of this style of iMac. So it's like uh, when a car is going to be replaced by the new model year, and you know, in that last model year, mm -hmm. they stick in all the gugas and didas and all sorts of stuff that you can have, you know, self driving and all of this junk, because they need to make that last model year of that car still really great. And I think that this is—it's not necessarily the last model year of this iMac, but we've sort of gone to the end of this particular chassis. Um, and so I'm looking forward to seeing what they come up with next in terms of that. Hopefully they're not going to focus quite as much on having an extremely thin edge that no one cares yeah. is thin. No, but yeah, we, I mean, I agree. That's an argument that's been reiterated over and over and one, which I'm very much on the, on the side of, I can understand why you want to make your laptops thin and light. I can understand why you want to make your phones thin and light. But I, for the love of God, cannot see why you need to turn the iMac into a wafer thin screen. You, what do you gain? You know, I, re I really. <laughs> Even aesthetically, I don't think it necessarily has to be that way. I totally understand as it's a dominant object on your desk that mm. you want to make it as aesthetically pleasing as you can. But I'm not sure that that means as, you know, a, a razor thin edge. Well, I, I don't buy the, you know, the, the earlier versions, which are what, you know, an inch thick with a, you know, a flat side. I don't find them any less aesthetically pleasing. I don't spend my time looking at the edge <laughs> <laughs> of my iMac. I spend my time looking at the screen. Yeah. So, um, yeah, thinness in a desktop, not really something I think they need to do. And I, in some ways, that, that's another uh, reason I think that the, the iMac Pro resembles the 2FX because the 2FX was very much the last machine of that genre of the, you know, basic, a simple box. Yeah, yeah. Uh, before they... I made the jump to to a, a different kind of design language. So, and don't get me wrong, the two FX was a fabulous machine. Mm -hmm. And again, I again I will reiterate: when people start whining that this iMac Pro cost five thousand dollars, yeah, the two FX was eight and a half thousand dollars, and that was without a screen or a keyboard or a mouse, which you had to buy from Apple separately. Uh, and you almost undoubtedly want to stick more of its special RAM in, which was horrendously expensive because they had specially done RAM. Um, and, uh, you know, eight and a half thousand dollars plus back then, I believe, equates to about eighteen thousand dollars today. So <laughs> five grand seems cheap, doesn't it? By comparison. <laughs> and I did have a two FX, but not from new. I didn't. I. I got given one many years after it was uh you know past its best but it was still a fabulous machine even then so there you go 
Blimey, where do we go after that one then? I, I, I really am hoping that it, this just won't be like what Apple do oh so many times. They release something and then they ring and it they out and it ring it out and ring it out. And then all of a sudden you get into the cycle of, well, we've released it. and uh, Now it's going to be maybe become obsolete in a couple of years. Well, not obsolete, but there'll be people who be going, why hasn't this had an update? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing well, I hope they avoid and they actually sort of I, make I'm a hoping, commitment to it. I'm very much hoping that they've learned their lesson a little bit there and that the iMac Pro, particularly as a sealed unit, will get refreshed every year and it will be, you know, we've put in faster core processors or we've put in a better thing or, you know, a better GPU or whatever. But we shall see. We shall see. Well, the next story we've got is Apple certainly have been splashing the old cash a bit recently because this week it's been reported. Well, it's been I saw this actually and... That they were buying no, Shazam? Has it actually it gone through? Um, right. I was relying on the, the price, internet to keep up to date. With, to keep up to date. Well, it is a bit thing. There was a lot of, you know, Apple is likely to buy Shazam. Apple appears to be talking to Shazam. And then it, it was confirmed. Apple are buying Shazam. The exact figure has not been disclosed. Um, I believe rumours are in the 400 million bracket, which is actually peanut to Apple. Uh, I'm sure whoever starts Shazam will be very pleased to get 400 million bung. But it's an English company, isn't it? Uh, I don't know. Actually, I think it I is. Think it is. Yeah. Yes, I think yeah. you're right. I think it is a British company. Because this used to be the service where you would, on your phone, you would uh, dial. I think it was two five eight zero or something like that. There was a code that you dialed on your phone. And then you basically just hung it up to the speaker and it actually came back with what was playing. And it was like, wow, that's impressive. It's scary. But the it's the implementation on iOS bugs me because you can go, hey, telephone, what song is this? And if your phone's locked, it will show you a little lock screen, but it doesn't save it. Does that make sense? It, it doesn't save it in your Shazam history unless you actually tell it to. And and this caught me out the other week. It's like, hey, telephone, what song is this? It says, ah, this is so-and-so by so-and-so. And because I then opened up my phone and went elsewhere, I lost that recognition. And I thought, well, that's a little bit clunky. Well, it's interesting to see that Shazam, I think their business model sort of got taken out from under them. Originally, they were based so that you would look for a song that you really liked and then you would purchase it. But as everybody moves more towards streaming services... Uh, they no longer had that uh, that that revenue, so there is a huge problem with uh, trying to continue the data. So now what they've got is a data uh, is a data source, and I think that more than anything else, Apple is actually acquiring that data because now they can see more about what people want to buy and what people are interested in, which can help their Apple Music uh, product become better. Well, I think. It's a good. I think this is one of these purchases where um, it's it's clearly a good thing for Apple to acquire. You can see how it fits in. I mean, they're already using the Shazam technology, as Mark said, in uh-huh. um, Hoi Hoi Telephone. Yes. Um, and you can see that if you were to if they incorporate that into Apple Music and into Siri, you will be able apple will be able to have that you know detect this song and of course it will bring up a list and it will be available in itunes for you know 99 cents or why not you know it's on apple music why not subscribe here 
and you know so on and you know or it, and it's in this film it comes from this film which is available on itunes etc etc so i can see that bit and yes they're buying the database and they're buying to some extent they should think uh, some of the customers and they're no doubt acquiring a team with a lot of expertise in some kind of machine learning that allows them to make this work and obviously machine learning is very big and acquiring people who are good at machine learning is something that Apple really want to get into. If you look, the, the Shazam's valuation was actually quite high before they purchased. So it, they've been on their way down for a while because their business model kind of went to hell. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because that was Shazam's thing, wasn't it? It was, it was detect a song and then these are where you can these are the places you can buy this song and they were getting affiliate revenue from yep. from the purchasers but mm. as you say as more and more people simply find the name of the song and then put it in what streaming service is it available on they're, they're making less and less uh, return yeah well, so... it's funny you should say about streaming services, because our next story is in the lines of that. Apple picks up a new space drama from the creator of Battlestar Galactica. I love that show. I love that reboot. Last couple of series went a bit sort of funky for me. It was like, oh, all existentialism, this, that, and the other. But it looks like, yeah, Apple's spending some of that cash all of a sudden. And I wonder if yeah. that's just because all of a sudden now we've got the Apple TV app. Uh, have you used that, by the way, David? If you have a, a an Apple TV at yours, I do. Yeah, I I, I use uh, the Apple TV quite a lot, and I even do use the TV app somewhat. Uh, obviously, it's got a slight dearth of things that are plugging into it, but that's been improving over time. Um, I thought I also noticed this story, and I think that's really interesting. He he hasn't done a lot of successful series after that Galactic reboot, which I concur with your judgment. I thought it was terrific. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what he does, especially since Apple has indicated that their focus is on Disney-esque G-rated material, uh, which I certainly would not call Battlestar Galactic. A oh no, yeah. But uh, you know, I might go in. Uh, I think I might do, might do a bit of binge watching, season mm. one to season four, because it does stand the test of time. Um, I wasn't going to go into this, but. I was right. It's been confirmed about the Amazon Prime TV app that it's basically just a very, very skillful web interface front end, which explains why it doesn't have like the fluidity or the noises when you navigate around. But it works and it will do for now. But you just think with all that effort that must have gone into program a WebKit or a web UI view, why couldn't they have just made it up? Well, I think that's what that's what Netflix has done too. They've got the same general core running on all the platforms that they run on. So, I think that you know having to maintain multiple platforms as someone who's done that kind of thing is a big pain in the neck. If you can try to get it to one thing that satisfies your customers and looks looks good, I think that's the way to go. The problem I see with the uh, uh, with the Amazon Prime app is that you don't get full surround sound. It's only two point So hopefully they'll fix that problem. Ah, I did not not aware of that. But then again, I'm still one of these people that listen to audio through their TV speakers and should really get a set of decent speakers. And Spring my... for something good. Well, I'm well... going to have to now for my blimmin' um, hard drive backup, aren't I? That's all my Christmas money on. <laughs> I have to say, talk, talking of speakers, I did actually um, get a sound bar for my TV the other day. Um, some no-brand thing, but it, it's... It's 
quite good. It certainly uh, brings a bit more depth to the sound than the, than the TV put out. I still don't know why it is that when you go and buy a perfectly good TV, they have to put such rubbishy, blinking, transistor radio-style speakers in them. I oh, I know why. It's, so it's, they can send you a save, no, And also to save a nickel, because unfortunately what people tend to do these days is they are looking for the for the cheapest thing with the specs that they want. And yeah. so you have to save, save a nickel everywhere. Um, it, it's too bad, really. Anyway, so I've got I've got this uh, sound bar. It, it, I don't know. So as I say, some no brand thing, but it's uh, it, it's quite nice. It's the width of the TV. It sits on the mantelpiece quite nicely, uh, and it definitely brings some uh, some more depth and uh, you know, uh, timbre to the TV output. And also quite handily, it uh, you can flick it to Bluetooth mode and use it to play music from your phone. Oh, quite handy. Yeah. yeah. So you can you if you're not got the TV on, you can use it as a Bluetooth speaker. Quite pleasant. It, it's it's interesting that people tend not to spend a lot of time thinking about their own TV sound apart from the lousy speakers in the TV. Whereas when we all are watching movies and other content so much more at home, sound is such a big deal in the theatrical experience that replicating that better at home is uh is something that i think is uh, adds a lot to your viewing yeah uh, the, the different i've started pairing my apple airpods with the apple tv and all right it's not the most comfortable thing to have them all in all day every day like i've got them in but they're not too bad but the amount of noise and background ambience and stuff that you hear just by having a good set of speakers close to you is absolutely unreal. Uh, so if I'm watching a movie and I want to get really grossed in it, I will stick in my AirPods. Yeah. Right, I think we'll do one more story, although the the net neutrality thing, I think we'll let that one play out. Uh, Murdoch sells to Disney. Well, yeah. that's all over the web, I think. Yeah. So, but the one thing, <laughs> I don't know if you heard about this, David, but Patreon last week caused a bit of a kerfuffle. When they said that basically you're too poor for us, get out of here. We only want the people with the big bucks. <laughs> Do you think that was the way that they pitched it? <laughs> uh, well, the thing is, when they released the initial announcement, it was very, very business speaky. It was very yeah. sort of, you know, we've listened to our people, you know, listen to the people that have emailed us and they're saying that they want a better this and we're going to give them that. Uh, and now they sort of completely turned around and went, Reading between the lines, I've, it sort of said to me, oh, bugger, we've got this wrong. Please, 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 please don't leave us. I don't think uh, we kind of well, got our math right. Actually, Mark, uh, for for those who haven't been following it, the, the thing was that Patreon has, you know, collects small donations uh, for people like us, podcasters and uh, musicians and so on who create content. And its original pitch was that, People can donate money, you know, a dollar a month or five dollars a month or whatever, uh, and that that would be collected up into a lump uh, and then processed, and that Patreon would take their cut and give the rest of the money to the, um, you know, to the content creator. Now, for various reasons, which you can read about all over the place. Uh, some people were saying that this was a little bit clunky the way it worked and, and it wasn't truly smooth. Patreon said, oh, we've come up with this uh, new way of doing it and it will be smoother and the recipients of the donations 
will be better off. And what we're going to do is we're going to process each uh, each donation individually as it comes in, and we will reduce our cut to I think it was two point nine or two point five percent. Well, they, and, uh, Patreon's cut was the same actually. Patreon's cut was always five percent. It was that the uh, the transaction processing fee was then passed on to the user as opposed to being held internally. And that's because instead of bundling the transactions, as even Apple does, uh, they were processing them individually, which is yeah. as someone who processes small amounts, it's very expensive. Yeah. So, but worse, they then said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to put that processing fee on to the donor. Right. So if you wanted to make a $1 donation uh, a month via Patreon, you would get charged $1 plus 35 cents uh, processing fee plus another basically 3% for Patreon. Now, of course, that immediately meant that a lot of patrons who are donating at these small levels when well, hang on, a one dollar donation is now now going to cost me, you know, one dollar forty. So they pulled out. They just started pulling their donation, and people were very angry. A lot of patrons were very angry, angry, particularly people who donate to a lot of a lot of sources, but at very small amounts, like us, for example. Because well, I because yeah. yeah, I got an email for the guy saying he would rather go down the route of getting my banker details, going into his banking app, setting up a new recipient, rather than using Patreon. Yeah. And I'm thinking, yeah, you know, we were lucky because, you know, we don't have that many Patreon subscribers, but we'd love you each and every single one of you. And thank you all so much for the feedback. But you can imagine that there is probably a big part of Patreon's business model where people just forget. They donate a dollar and they forget. And then all of a sudden that dollar's changed. And it takes they look at the bank statement and they're going, oh, oh, hang on a sec. Cancel out. I, they must have lost so much money. Well. The biggest problem was that, you know, as as I said last week, Snaggy said to me that the minute this was announced, he lost about 13 or 15 patrons in a day. Wow. Now, those people were probably only donating one or two dollars each, but that was, a you know, a disaster for, for a lot of people and lots of people. And it also came out, this thing about we only want people with big bucks came from a, a document, a sort of um, business strategy document that had been published in the summer. And of course that got out and then the, the people got wind of this thing of, well, we're not really interested in little piddling amounts and little piddling podcasts like uh, Simon and Mark, who, you know, have a few donations. They're not really making us any money. Anyway, the furor was violent. The backlash was extreme. People from the smallest to the biggest basically stood up and went, you've completely screwed us over and you're screwing over our patrons and you're messing up our business and we're very angry and we're going to leave and go somewhere else and we'll, you know, well, we don't care if it's PayPal or anywhere, we're just going somewhere else. And this whole uh, in the link, the, the CEO basically he was on Twitter and he went, okay, I'm seeing the backlash. Um, I think I might have to go away and rethink this. And then they came back and there's no really reading between the lines, Mark. He out and out says, yeah, sorry, we uh, <clears throat> this up. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
we're really sorry and we're, we're, put, we're not going to do that. We're putting that on hold. Uh, we do need to make changes, you know, to our business model, but we need to negotiate that with the content uh, providers and the patrons themselves because, yeah, well, It's sorry. what he said, wasn't it? He said he, they stepped in the middle of trying to make things easier between the people, the people getting revenue and their taxes, they were trying to step in that middle of the bridge, and now they've decided to go, well, actually, that's not down to us. If you're running a business and you've got, ca- um, what's the word, uh, inconsistent cash flow coming in, coming out, well, that's your business. That's not, um, you know, that shouldn't lie on the door of Patreon. Well, I think what they did is they just went, oops, yeah, we've just upset our whole customer base, and they're about to leave us in, in droves. And oh, you know, I, I guess all props to uh, to their CEO for saying, "Oh dear, you know, this isn't going to work. We better put a stop on this and rethink." So I guess you've got to give him, you know, kudos for that. But very much, it's a case of did you not think to discuss this with some people before you made this decision? Because oh, I, I think he did. I, it, it this all smells like they see a business problem where they get a certain number of complaints where. People are like, oh, I, I really want to get paid weekly and not monthly, but this bundling approach is not working. And so they come up with an idea. They run it through a couple of business consultants. They say, oh, yeah, that works fine. And they they may have run it past a couple of the people who complained, but obviously didn't ask the people in the Patreon community in general. And it it just came off really, really badly. Well, it just came off really badly, didn't it? Yeah. And, and any – to be honest – any plan which involves asking patrons to carry the fees, yeah, yeah, it's just is not going to work, and it didn't. And I can see why. If you're if you're somebody who donates a dollar, say you listen to ten different podcasts, and you say, right, I'll give you one or two dollars each a month, and that's you know I can afford that much money. Well, if you're doing that and it goes up by effectively forty percent. You know, that $10 becomes $15 or your $20 becomes $28 or whatever. That, you know, that's a bit of a kick in the doodah, isn't it? But isn't it? No wonder people start pulling out. Did you not also find out and look into the fact that that, that so far, and I didn't know this, that Patreon is still basically running by VC funding? Yep. So it's not like they're actually an established company. They're using money to make money, which I suppose is any business, but... You know, they're building a business model, and I'm, I can only assume that part of this is, yes, they've admitted that internally, you know, the, the current model isn't really working out properly for them. For them, and, yeah. And that's fair enough, because in the end, you can't run on VC money forever. Sooner or other, you have to make it a self-sustaining business, or you're going to go out of business. And but that's fair enough. Doesn't but, this also show that a lot of the problem with, I think, many of our businesses are the extremely high transaction processing fees for credit cards and the like yeah. that yeah just the, the you know that that 1.9 plus 35 cents a transaction it makes it extremely hard for people to do small value donations and make any money off it well it's yeah. just like if you go to a market in town they they won't let you pay for your card uh, for anything less than 10 pounds exactly the, right yeah and in the uk now coming next year you're not going to be allowed to charge a credit card or debit card processing fee because you know it's like you go to these garages and they say oh you will charge you 50p if it's below a certain amount well as from i think it's january next year that's against the law 
You're not allowed to charge people for providing, which is technically, I think it comes under like a service or something like that. that but uh, maybe, maybe, though, going down the line, make Super Duper subscription only. It's like pay a, subs- <laughs> pay a subscription or your backup's time out. Yeah, no, we've, we've in fact, in, in what? It's been 13 years, whatever it's been. Uh, we've we've never even charged for an update, so it's been uh, it, it's been twenty twenty seven dollars since two thousand four, and it's twenty seven dollars well spent. Yeah, I mean the whole Patreon thing, as he put it, you no, know, we hummed <clears throat> up, and yeah, they did. They just, I I think you're right, Dave. I think you know a load of business consultants looked at the suggested new plan and went, yeah, that'll work. Yeah, yeah, of course it'll work. Unfortunately, nobody, you know, I mean, if you're donating a hundred dollars, or even maybe ten dollars, then an extra thirty-five cents means nothing. But if you're donating, you know, ten dollars, but all in one dollar amounts, then that's not. <laughs> it's well, a, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, it does mean something, and that was where they completely screwed up. When when you tell someone that there's a service fee for giving money to something, yeah. that is that is shifting the burden of the fee visually onto someone who doesn't e- shouldn't even be thinking about that. No, and what part of the part of the backlash was very much from the content providers. Um, and I listened to a show called The Grumpy Old Geeks. Um, <laughs> And and I mean they were furious, you know. When when they were absolutely furious, and they said, "We want you to give us money, and we're happy to pay the fees." That's how it works. You as donators should not have to pay the fee. And we were never even consulted. We yeah. were not even given a choice to say, "Yes, we're happy for you to charge our our patrons the fee." No, and they were livid, and quite rightly so. And as they said. Uh, on their cast, and a bit like I said last week, well, I suspect the backlash has been so violent and so instant that it's quite likely Patreon are going to roll it back, as they have done. And as they've said, we're going to have to come up with a new strategy, but this time we're going to uh, we're going to discuss it with the community properly before we implement it. And it's just a case of I don't know why you didn't think to do that in the first place. So we'll see how it pans out, but. I think a lot of people are going to lose quite a lot of trust in Patreon and a lot of things about how they work, of course, have come to light uh, as a result of it, such as the things that most people didn't know, like that, you know, they're still currently running on VC funding and that's going to make people a lot more wary. You know, once bitten, twice shy. Indeed. And we will keep it because we use it and thankfully now they reversed it. I think we'll be, we'll stick, we are looking into alternatives. Pinecast does have a tip jar that we are we are going to start investigating, but so watch this space. And you know what, chaps? It's Sunday. We've been going for a good solid hour and a half. Let's get out of here and do something socially like. Well, even though in the fact it's getting dark out there. So, David, again from Super Duper, this is your time now to just shill yourself senseless. If people want to find out more about your product, follow you on the Twitter, the social media, or anything like that, how could they stalk you if so they wish? Uh, well, the uh, the site is Shirt Pocket, which is www.shirt-pocket.com. And I believe Shirt Pocket, all one word, still works because I, I bought that a while ago. It finally came available. 
Um, I'm on Twitter as Dnanian. That's D-N-A-N-I-A-N. I'm on Instagram as the same thing. And on most social sites, I use that same tag, which I've used since the 70s. So <laughs> it's been my login for a long time. So you can, you can find me under that name. Awesome. Thank you very much for coming on. We would love to have you uh, come back on. In fact, we might, if we can, we'll do next year, we'll do a follow-up show because I'm going to do a backup over Christmas. I don't believe it. Well, (laughs) stay tuned, folks. Stay tuned. Simon, if they want to get a hold of you, sir, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, Well, I am, of course, on the Twitter as at Serenak, and that's S-E-R-E-N-A-K. And uh, I sometimes put things in our Google Plus. I am in our Slack room, which, of course, any listeners are free to join. Just ask for an invitation. Uh, And that's not because we demand an invite only. It's because that's how Slack works. Uh, next week, if it works, I might try a live stream. I will be tinkering with the tubes and see if I can't do a live audio stream. So follow us on the Twitter at Essential Apple, or uh, yeah, that'd be the best one to get us. Or yes. go on to EssentialApple.com, and we'll keep you posted. So and yes, because next, next week, week it's a Christmas it's, special. It's the Christmas Eve Essential Apple Podcast Party. I had a Everybody slight preview. And it was spectacular. So this is going to be good. I I, I love sarcasm. (laughs) No. (laughs) There's no sarcasm there. No sarcasm. Duly impressed. So join us next time. And yes, if Mark can do a live stream, that will be absolutely amazing. And if anyone's got any advice on how to do a live stream, please get in touch. (laughs) (laughs) Best you ask uh, Paul and, uh, of course, Oliver. They'll help you out, I'm sure. So, once again, David Nanyan, Shirt Pocket Software, maker of the awesome Super Duper. Thank you very much for joining us, and we will see you all next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Awesome. Yay. Awesome. Sorry there we about the slightly rough, rough podcast manners. I haven't done one of these in a little while. So. Well, from the sound of us, we, we, from what we sound like, you probably think we haven't either. <laughs> I don't think that at all, actually. Well, there's a, the way I look at it, there's enough ATPs, there's enough Grubers and stuff like that. And I think if the whole point of getting a guest on is that if they can talk with passion about their product, it doesn't matter about how inept the co-hosts are. If they, people get to hear the voice and hear the message and hear the desire and why you've done it, uh, I think that makes for good listening. I could be wrong, uh, but who knows? And do back up. Come on, Mark. What the hell? I haven't got any spare hard drive space. I'll just go buy one. Yeah, but they're expensive. They're not. They Th- are not expensive. They're like a million pounds. Then... <laughs> listen. Because what do you I get? Really... I mean, do you get a Western Digital Blue? They don't make them. Or a green or a black now. Do I get an external hard drive? Can't just, go just... Buy, just go and buy a bloody... Buy a two and a half inch hard drive on Amazon for $75, which will be a three terabyte drive. Is that large enough? Do you need a bigger one? Well, no, I've got one here, but it's only got 500 um, gig free. But my main hard drive has got about 700 gigs of stuff in use. Okay, great. So? So I can't back it up because I haven't got enough space. So get another drive. <laughs> oh, but they're or, expensive. No, check, check how much guff you've got on the other one. Please don't tell me that all of the cliches about whales are true. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, they are. Jeez. 
Sorry to, sh- <laughs> sorry to shatter the illusions of that, but yeah, every single cliche. Have you not heard the famous expression, I'll do it now with a minute? <laughs> I have not, no. Yeah, no, that, that's well, good. I'm going to send you a round to it. Uh, but you should definitely get a hard drive. You're going to be so sad when you lose everything except those uh, legally watched TV shows. So, um... well, I didn't want to say porn. I was trying to, I was, <laughs> I was trying to keep it high, bro. <laughs> it is a family podcast, so I thought that that was wise. Yeah, that that'll be a bleep in the after show. Oh, I've I've got to do the after show. Blimey! <sighs> yes, I I will do it, and we'll see. Because you've got compression on SuperDupe, haven't you? No, no compression. Don't use compression. Compression means that if something goes wrong, you can't recover it. So don't uh, do that. Just right. back up to a drive. Buy the drive. Go get. You can do it. Go and get the Western Digital Pocket. No, it's off. not as simple as that because I have That's to go it. on. No, because you have to go on the sites like um, Hot Deals UK, find no, the best don't. hard drive you can find. You don't have to do then that. you have to go up to the top <laughs> cashback site. Make sure you can get cashback on it as well. So it's not just a question of like buying a hard drive. There's there's a process that needs to be followed. You have to read the reviews on the hard drives. <laughs> just buy a Western that, Digital My Passport Pocket Drive. That's that's what you got. That's going to be cheap. Just plug it in. But I bought one of them before and it failed. Your next, of course it did. Drives always fail. All drives fail. So it's no point all the time. It's like when I tell people. Like some of the best built drives are the LeC drives. They're actually still the higher end lights. The C drives are great. They're well built and they they cool their sums well. And they say, but they fail. It's like, yeah, yeah, they fail. <laughs> drives fail. All fail. All drives fail. All SSDs the time. will fail eventually. Yep. Everything fails. Actually, SSDs Anything? fail much more catastrophically than regular drives do. Too, yeah, because so. they just go. <laughs> they just go, right, exactly. When all the leveling has been leveled, all of the bits fail at the same time. Yeah, yeah. it's bad. a binary. It's like, it's working. Oh, I've lost everything. It's working. Oh, no, it's not. Yeah, that's yeah. it. That's all there is to it. But I'm going to have another drink now. I will. <laughs> Don't blame me. I'm telling you, your holiday party is going to be great. So. <laughs> oh, well, I, I will be off my face. I've already started buying the beer for it. I've got I've got the Baileys on standby. Well done. <laughs> See, I mean, what? How much nonsense is this? Sixty-five quid for a two hundred forty gig SSD. That's uh... how what? How much? Sixty-five quid for two hundred forty gig of an SSD. I bought two seventy-five for eighty. No, you see now what you're doing no, is you you're see? the beast right now. You're encouraging. Thank him to you. Shop. Yes. You will never buy anything if you start doing that. See, I'll put this in the chat in wire. No, you don't need an SSD anyway. No. Yeah, but you, this, is the, this is the point. It's like you've got to find the right hard drive. And when you're looking for hard drives, you're going to see all the other offers. Then you end up down the rabbit hole. So, all right, so someone has to get you a hard drive for Christmas, clearly. Because then, yeah. although then will you return it and say, this one was too expensive, I need to find the right one. Well, as long as they pay the return postage. Oh, I, yeah. I, you know, I can't, yeah, I'm not made of money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, I think on that note, I'm going to go get a drink. <laughs> And we actually have some Apple news and a guest. This week, Apple released the iMac Pro purchase Shazam. Shazam? That's a great start. Purchase Shazam. Updated Final Cut X Pro, Logic Pro, and Motion. Patreon. 
Well, <laughs> patronizingly, Reverse Course apologized to user. Disney bought most of Rupert Murdoch's empire and the FCC, or FFC. Should I just start again? Hold on a second. <laughs> this week, Apple released the iMac Pro, purchased a damn... <sighs> <laughs> Where, yeah, that was Saddam Hussein. Did they purchase his? Oh, uh, we've we've we're joined by David Nanian of Shirt Pocket Software, which is one of those stupid backup software things that nobody needs to use. Uh, yes. Oh, let me try one more time. Oh, is anyone? Take it, just take it from the top, Mark. Right. Yeah, I, 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 take it from the top. Right. Seamless. Here we go.